Hello, kittens. This episode is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity's 10 Days, or whatever, of Kwanzaa. You give Cards Against Humanity $15, and they'll send you 10 mystery gifts for the 10 days or whatever of Kwanzaa. Space is limited to the first 250,000 people who sign up at HolidayBullshit.com. Comedy Club, located conveniently next door to the Sleep Train here in the Arden and Howe Mall at the glamorous corner where there's a McDonald's and a bunch of other shit. Once more, we're at the Punchline in Sacramento. Hooray! Our state capital, and behind me, an evocative depiction of the state capital with an enormous moon rising over it. Uh, that is, of course, Jerry Brown's head. As you can see, Jerry Brown is our governor here. He was our governor when I was in high school. He's our governor now that you're in high school. Uh, that's the continuity we have in America. The same politicians are back, uh, and it's exciting. We had an election all over the country, and uh, if you listen to the news and the media, uh, you'll have heard that uh, it was a landslide for conservatism in that everybody uh, had a referendum on Obama when the truth was uh, nobody voted and uh, those that did vote were suppressed and it was really a fucking banana republic farce of an election quite frankly oh you're just saying that because you're bitter and you lost no I say during every election this country is we're so lucky that fucking the Ukraine doesn't invade us and install a democracy every other day of the goddamn week the way we conduct elections is a goddamn shame in this country why is there not voting for a week okay and why is the voting not 20 24 hours a day, okay? How hard would that be? There's money for everything else. There's money for the NFL. There's money for politicians. There's money for endless drones and, 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 and executions and torture and every other manner of mayhem that the governor, uh, the governor, that the government, rather, that was a total Freudian slip. <laughs> governor, if Governor Jerry Brown might be responsible for several things, but torture and execution are two things I'm letting him off the hook for. <laughs> I mean, I know he was a Jesuit, and they are masochists. <laughs> but I'm not saying he wears a collar or any kind of weird, like, you know, uh, uh, chainmail uh, scrotal pouch under his <laughs> suit or anything. I'm not saying he's like Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court. You know, the Opus Dei people like to wear, like, a, a biting thing that, you know, nips into their leg all day long and stuff so that they can always be subservient to the idea that, uh, you know, they're uh, enormously misguided. But the point is this... <laughs> Uh, they just haven't heard my show, right? Uh, they, uh, they, we, we have every uh, kind of funding uh, to spend on every uh, manner of stuff and every tax break given to every giant corporation. And yet, voting is one crappy day from 7 to 7 on a fucking Tuesday. Who's fucking off on Tuesday and who has 7 to 7 to deal with shit? Uh, you know, I mean, let's get down to what's what. And we've said it before on the show, but I'm going to say it again now since we just had an election. And we've got a very important one coming up in two years, which is... Um, the, the, the founding fathers wanted to make sure at the very outset that women and people of color didn't have a voice at all and that that grand tradition has been carried on perhaps more vociferously than any other tradition in this fucking country. Women had to fight unbelievably like tooth and nail for several hundred years to get recognized to be able to vote. Uh, for instance, women got the right to vote in 1919. My mother passed away last year. She was born in 1919. So this is an ancient history. This is simply something that happened in my own mother 
Taylor's lifetime. But Greg, you're unbelievably old. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Let me tell you something about President Lincoln. He never picked up a check. <laughs> You had to buy your own rounds when Lincoln was in the house. You know what I mean? You're like, do you have four score and seven dollars? And he's like, I don't even, I don't even know how many that is. It's like 87 because the check's 125. All right, and I'm not stiffing him. I thought you were honest, Abe. And he's like, I'm pecunious. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm frugal, Abe, as well. Uh, yeah, I don't, I've never understood it. Uh, I didn't understand it when I was little, and I don't understand it now. The idea that you have to produce a government-issued ID is heinous, beyond measure. If you live in this country and you pay taxes, that's enough to vote. Am I wrong or am I right? Yeah. Uh, whether you have a driver's license or not, or some kind of social security card, or whatever things they're accepting. Uh, by the way, in certain states, they weren't allowing college IDs, but they were allowing gun permits. You know what I mean? So you can see how things are skewed. Uh, if you're a college student, you should absolutely be able to vote using a, any kind of fucking ID. You know, several years ago, there was no argument about this at all until the Republicans started losing every election and knew that they were never going to win another election unless they gerrymandered everything and rigged all the voting laws and voting rules. That's why 2000 went down the way it did. It also happened when I was in college because uh, the Jimmy Carter-Ronald Reagan election was a hilarious election uh, where all kinds of things happened, uh, as was the 1960 election with JFK and uh, Richard Nixon. Everyone in the state of Illinois voted about 10 times during that election. Uh, so we really don't have a great record, uh, uh, and yet we, we call ourselves the world's greatest democracy and a beacon for morality all over the world, and that we're the ones who are going to spread uh, uh, the, the form of republic that we enjoy, uh, which of course now is basically an oligarchy wrapped in a plutocracy smothered in a rich guy's ass. Um, so it's not really working out the way we thought it would. But let's look on the bright side of things. Uh, first of all, I believe Obama uh, uh, went in and did a presidential executive order. I didn't even get to see the news today. My understanding is just from looking at Twitter uh, backstage was that, and I call it backstage here, you should see the lavish backstage we have here at the Punchline Sacramento. It's honestly, it's like the cor chorus line back there. There's, uh, there's, there's caviar and there's iced buckets of champagne. It's really fabulous. I, I would take you all back there, but it's an extraordinarily small room, and only I uh, fit in there because there's a bar where I do my stretches before the show. Uh, when you say a bar, do you mean like a ballet bar? No, I mean like a liquor bar where I, I stretch by going like this. Ah, ah, come on, work through it, Greg. Feel the burn. Ah! <laughs> Uh, huh. I, I looked at it, and evidently, he, uh, I don't know what he did. I don't know if he vetoed something or signed an executive order. There's been nothing going on about immigration. This is a perfect place to talk uh, about immigration, because Sacramento is nothing uh, without the many, many Latin people who live here and do all of the important fucking jobs uh, all over the United States and all over the West, but particularly Sacramento. Um, when I hear the ugly white people who really are against immigration, I'm always like, do you think that your ancestors were born in this country? Because they fucking weren't. They came over in an ugly boat, all right? <laughs> like everyone else did. No one is from here except for the Indians who we graciously let dwell on their native casinos. And so I think everyone deserves a fair chance to get into this country. And really the problem is not immigrants, is it? Uh, the problem is that rich people don't ever pay their share. Uh, is the boring preachy part started already? No. I just thought I'd start with some lighthearted <laughs> stories. 
Does anyone remember the story I was starting to tell? Oh, I played Cleveland, yeah. And so everyone here tonight, everyone here tonight seems to actually know why they're attending this uh, uh, conference. And it's because uh, this is a four-day breakout session. We're talking about IT matters. uh, And uh, at the end of it, we're all going to go golfing and whatever in the rain. And uh, no, this is a a podcast, but I I played Cleveland last year. Uh, I was a fill-in to be, be, you know, perfectly fair about it. It is a club that I love very much, a club called Hilarities in Cleveland. A fellow named Nick owns it, and he's absolutely the most divine individual that ever walked the face of the earth. Uh, however, I was filling in uh, for another comedian, and um, and in any case, uh, I did the Thursday night. I did the podcast on the Thursday, and there were at least a dozen or more people who had the slightest idea of what a podcast was or why I was sitting and drunk. <laughs> And when I started talking smack about the government and shit, I don't know if you're aware of this about Ohio. Parts of it are red. (laughs) Cleveland itself is generally blue, but people drive in from outside of Cleveland and they go to this place because it's downtown Cleveland, which has a renaissance. Uh, There's an artisanal burger bar. Oh, yes, there is. Oh, yeah. No, there is. You can have quinoa in downtown Cleveland. I'm not fucking with you. And and all that jazz. Uh, But as I started the show, and I could hear dissent in the back of the room, you know, the grumbling and the murmuring. First First of all, like I talked to everybody before the show, I was talking to people in Cleveland. I went up to them. And I'm like, hi, I'm Greg. And they're like, well, who the fuck are you? And I'm like, uh, I have a question. Who the fuck are you? This is my show in my fucking showroom. Okay. Ning nong. Uh, pull it together this instant. I'm like, I'm the comedian here tonight. And they're like, well, I hope you're funny. And I'm like, well, I hope you have half a fucking brain. Because you have to crawl a little bit to get this show. This isn't one that just dumps itself on your doorstep and you stamp on it like a bag of dog shit when someone's playing Ding Dong Ditch It. This show, this show requires some finesse. I don't, just, I don't just fuck you immediately. You have to tell me I'm pretty for a while. And you have to dandle my nether regions. This, this, I'm not anybody's girl. And like that. Uh, anyway, I adore Cleveland, but it was a tough weekend there. It was because they were there to see another comedian and no one had any idea that I had an opinion, uh, which came as quite a shock to the people of Cleveland that I actually disagreed with their unbelievably moribund, recondite, fucking troglodyte, ancient fucking 1500s views on the world. <laughs> where evidently women need to be chained to a plank and you need to be able to carry a gun and all that's important is football and dying young. Uh, but to, on a happier note, uh, we're here in Sacramento. Uh, I flew in today on a very small plane from Los Angeles and uh, it's, of course, uh, pissy here in Sacramento. I wouldn't say full-on raining. I'd say, you know, that kind of rain. We're like, you're driving and you're like, oh, really? And then you put the blank wipers on. Oh, you put the, if you're me, you put the blinkers on. And let's... And just leave them on all the way down Arden for about 10, 12 miles. And what's that weird jog in Arden that you have to make? And then you come around. It's confusing. I mean, Sacramento, as my friend Larry Brown says, is the most uh, uh, beautifully. Uh, the streets are A, B, C, D, one, two, three, four, because the imagination here ran riot when they built the town. <laughs> but Arden makes a weird jog. And uh, I'm, I'm always getting lost on Arden. In, in any case, uh, but I have no sense of direction and I pay no attention to what I'm doing. And I'm often high. So those three factors. <laughs> if I was on Magellan's ship, we'd still be sailing right now. I'd be like, is that Portugal? And they'd be like, no, we're in Asia. Oh. Does that mean we're not near Portugal? All right, Greg, go downstairs. What, I don't know what's in a boat. Go below deck. Is there an espresso maker on this boat? You guys are Spanish, right? 
speaking of immigrants, I mean, for fuck's sake, the people that discovered uh, uh, the white people that came over and and I love when they discovered America as if the millions of people that lived here didn't know about it. And then a bunch of Spaniards showed up wearing fucking metal helmets and went, you know, you live in a continent. And the Indians were like, oh, Madre Mia. Why did not you tell us before? Oh, thank God you brought horses. We've been waiting 11,000 years for those. Horses died uh, in North America uh, in, in the Pleistocene or whatever. In, during the uh, you know, prehistoric era, there were horses, but they all died and they're gone. And so the Spanish brought horses. Uh, they were the first. That's why if you see a movie about Indians and they're riding horses and it's before 1492, they walked. They walked the continent, baby. Uh, and they walked it hard. Uh, in any case, uh, it's pissy rainy here. It's not full on rainy. I expect maybe some serious rain by tomorrow. And of course, the, uh, one of the people who came in here tonight, I don't remember your name, uh, gave me the worst news about Sacramento, the tragic news. I don't know if you heard, but uh, in the interim of the last time I was here, which was about a year and a half, two years ago, um, Guy Fieri's restaurant uh, closed. <laughs> Welcome to Triple D. We're rolling out. I'm here in Fuckwood, Indiana. At a whites-only place that's supposed to be off the chain. It's always the eminent... Uh, it, it, it's the, the, the idea that when Guy takes a gi- guy <laughs> takes a giant bite of the pastrami with onion rings on it or whatever Hennis dish that they always make at the places he goes to and he takes that first giant bite and he goes ah like that that he's going to have coronary arrest right then and there on camera um, the two things I can't forgive him for are his white hair and he wears flip flops into kitchens okay gross and barf and never stop barfing you don't come into my my kitchen unless you're wearing fucking clogs like Mario Batali, okay? No one comes in wearing flip-flops near my fucking deep fryer, one. And two, really? Dyed white hair? Let me ask you something. Are you in the Canadian Football League in the 80s? Because that's what your hair is saying. Your hair is saying two things. No means yes and yes means anal. And I've got roofies. Those are the two things your hair is saying. Guy Fieri. It's Guy Fieri, all right? Oh, what am I? Girag P. Roops, okay? Guy Fieri? And what was it called? Tex Wasacket or whatever? That was horrible. It was, uh, and you know what? It, in the car park adjacent to Tex Wasabi or whatever is no longer there is Garibaldi's Mexican restaurant, which is off the chain. And, uh, and they show soccer all the time, football, uh, and, and you can get a, a screaming carnitas taco there. And you don't need Guy at all. Although I have to say, I do watch the show. I enjoy it. And then one week he had Kid Rock on, and I was like, really? Why don't you just have fucking Mitt Romney on next week? <laughs> And we'll have done with this and shit, okay? Why don't you just state where you're coming from? Is Guy from Sacramento? Santa Rosa. Santa Rosa. Really? Yep. And he acts like that? Yep. Fuck. Someone didn't go to Katati. He had his Ferrari stolen. His dad's from where? He had his Ferrari stolen. Did you hear that story? He had his Ferrari stolen recently, or is this one of those apocryphal, I heard that Guy Fieri had his Ferrari? It took him like 18 months to find it. Oh, so this happened several years ago. This, this late-breaking Gee Fieri story that you're <laughs> dropping on me. He just said it took him 18 months to find it. So we can safely say that at least 18 months are placed between the origin of the story and the moment we're existing in now. But I appreciate that. I, I know. I, I guess I missed the Gee Fieri 
uh, Ferrari stolen story. Um, you know what? Someone took it to a douchebag yard and had it broken down into its component douchebag parts. And uh, in it, they found a neck chain and, uh, and some uh, Charlie Brown shorty shorts, the kind he wears that are, the, you know, the little cut off at the thigh or cut off at the calf shorts, which make, by the way, if you're a man of stature, always wear shorty pants. Because what it does is it puts the focus toward the midsection of your body. And the equator is usually where all the goodness is, right? Party in the front, party all around the circumference. Uh, in any case, uh, thank you for all the gifts and thank you for the Gifiati story. Uh, uh, we, uh, 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 we've received some lovely gifts tonight. A young man gave me some baked goods. Thank you for those baked goods. Uh, I don't think I'll be eating them before I drive back to my hotel. I'll never make the, the jog on Arden. You know what I mean? I'll, you'll find me and I'll be in Davis and I'll be at the Whataburger there and you'll be like, Greg, why didn't you just go to your hotel? It's only a couple miles away. And I'm like, because I just wanted to drive, man. <laughs> It was wet out, and I ate some baked goods, and that shit fucking happened. <laughs> Emphasis on the peen. And speaking of which, if you're out in podcast land and you're listening to us in Proopcastville right now in your blanket fort, or while you're making tea, or while you're uh, uh, tilling the radishes in your uh, small truck garden that you have outside the lovely flat that you live in in uh, Harlow, uh, uh, this is a groovy time to eat some baked goods. And I don't mean dosed baked goods that have marijuana in them. I mean any kind of baked goods, uh, whether it's a cupcake or a, 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 a macaroon. Uh, and, or the French kind of the kind I like. In America, macaroons tend to be a coconut cookie. But everywhere else in the world, they're a delightful two-halved thing with a giant filling uh, that's delightful, uh, just, uh, um, delectable. And it's also usually, in my favorite flavors, pistachio. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a big... Eat despite the Stephen Colbert head splitting twain ad, I still like pistachios, even having seen that and thinking, wow, I don't know how much Comedy Central's paying you, but really? When the crowd goes quiet. Greg, are you saying you wouldn't do a pistachio ad if they offered you the money? Um, I'm a hoe. You know I'm a hoe. I rock three freaks after every show. I'm a hoe. You know I'm a hoe. How do you know? Because I told you so. I've, I've done a commercial or two in my time. I just was a little astounded by that one. Why, Greg? Why? Because it wasn't funny. And it was gross. When anyone's head splits open and they turn into a nut or whatever, I'm always like, gross. You know what kind of ads I like? Like, uh, the wind is blowing and there's a horse and whatnot and there's a beach and that's it. Those are the kind of ads I like. Every other ad I hate. I do like uh, I do like shaving commercials and shit where a guy's like got his shirt off and the room's all aquamarine or purple or some unfeasible fucking color that no man in this room has ever shaved in. Like, here's the deal about shaving. There has to be like putting your makeup on bright light and hot water and a whole bunch of things have to happen you know you have to get your beard soft you have to fucking get your razor together you have to dunk it in the water fellas uh, uh, alcohol a little rubbing alcohol put it in the water right and that way you don't get the fucking razor burns I'm here to give tips I'm like fucking hints from Heloise when having sex with a Guatemalan always tie off your monkey before entering the coconut realm I've got lots of handy tips. When you find a banana that's black at the end, cut the black part off. Eat from the stem N-words. If you're at a pizza place and you don't like the crust, just eat the center. 
A lot of people aren't aware of that. You don't have to eat a whole pizza. Like, for instance, if you go to San Francisco and you go to Delfino's Pizzeria, you must get the clam and garlic, right? The clam, the clam pie is about yay, right? Like individual, you know, yeah. 10-ish, 12-ish. And, uh, 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 you know, like the size of one of my male members. And uh, when you get it, like, you're like, There's a lot, that's a lot for one person. Just eat the center out, you know what I'm saying? Don't, you don't have to eat the fucking every bit of the crust and shit. This isn't the depression. Well, it is a depression. <laughs> What about that whole plutocracy oligarchy thing you were into earlier? What about you? Uh, Jared, Mr. Jared uh, came up to me tonight and gave me a, a boatload of uh, groovy gifts here, and I want to thank him for that. Thank you for the baked goods again, by the way. What was your name, young man? Tyler. Tyler. And he was with another guy named Tyler. There, were, there are two Tylers over there, in fact. Uh, you know, the other one that's named Tyler, you should change your name to Taylor. Then you could each be a president of the United States. And you should run around with another guy named James Knox Polk. <laughs> then you could be three presidents of the United States. You could be Taylor, Tyler, and Polk instead of just Tyler and Tyler, which is a, a very bad comedy team. Although Willie Tyler and Lester was an awesome comedy duo. Willie Tyler was a black ventriloquist from the 60s, 70s. And uh, his, uh, his, um, his puppet was Lester. And Lester wore, like, what's happening glasses and, like, a fucking big apple hat and shit. And he'd go, hey, what it is? Like that. He was very good. Very good. Very good indeed. Still gigging. Uh, Jared gave me this. Uh, and Jared writes me, thank you for coming to Sacramento, of course. Uh, thank you for being... This very, please accept this odd token of gratitude. I will. Thank you. Um, our shared love of baseball and the civil rights movement. He said to me, no one will talk to him about Negro League baseball here. Well, oh, is he barking up the right tree when he met me? Uh, I'm willing to stop this show dead and lose all of my listeners to talk about the, the Negro League baseball to the exclusion of all else. For those of you listening in Europe right now, don't stop this podcast. I'm not going to do it. I just said I'm willing to. <laughs> However, if I do talk about Negro League Baseball, it's going to be so enchanting and engaging that you'll go, you know, even though I'm Portuguese and you didn't recognize me when you sailed by with Magellan's boat, <laughs> I'm finding what you're talking about so unbelievably, irrevocably interesting and beguiling that I can't do but listen. Yeah. <laughs> Um, once upon a time, white people didn't let black people play baseball. How long ago was that? Oh, a couple of weeks ago. And <laughs> in any case, the Negro Leagues existed uh, for a long, long time in various uh, configurations. And uh, they were uh, an astounding uh, amalgamation of different teams all around this country. Not only did they have a regular schedule and played each other on a regular basis, they also barnstormed incessantly, sometimes two, three, four, or five games in a day and jazz like that. And they rode in cars. They rode in buses, they rode in trains, they weren't allowed to use bathrooms, they weren't allowed to eat at lunch counters, uh, they persevered until Jackie Robinson uh, was allowed to play baseball. I don't want to say he was gifted and that it was a great moment in American history. To be honest, uh, as much of a baseball fan as I am, and I'm sick with it, um, it is a giant, horrible detriment to baseball that it took till 1947 to allow one black man to play and that baseball goes out of its way to celebrate that they finally let a black man play instead of being ashamed of it yes. and issuing an apology every year that Latins and blacks weren't allowed to play that Asian people were finally in, uh, in the game in the last 25 years and as I've said on the show before the next frontier you guys women 
Yes. When women get to play in Major League Baseball, it is going to be super califragilistic, XB ala awesome. Uh, I would like to see some women play baseball, but women aren't strong enough to compete with men in the field of athletics. Do you know what your penis sounds like? Your penis sounds like a tiny albino infant alligator. Misshapen, white, corpus, weird looking, you know, lumpy, like a sea creature. No one wants to touch it or put it in their mouth, okay? Whenever you say stupid shit like that, that's what you sound like. But next you're going to have women play in the NFL and the NHL. No, I'm not. You don't think a woman could fucking pitch in the major leagues? You don't think a woman could play shortstop in the major leagues? If you don't, then you're an idiot. Because there are women players who are off the fucking deep end good, who throw fucking hard, baby. Uh, and yeah. it's not like baseball's this big intellectual challenge and shit. <laughs> I mean, there was an argument in the 70s when Jackie Robinson... Uh, they were celebrating his 25th anniversary in 1972. And he went to the game and they thought he was going to give a big thank you, you know, uh, Massa, oh, for your white overlords for letting me play and shit like that. But Jackie was fucking cool. And he got up and he went, you know, the only thing I'm disappointed at being here today after 25 years in this game is that there's no black managers. And the whole... <laughs> and I remember a Howard Cosell interview. Howard Cosell was a great sportscaster in this country and a, a, a ragingly political and wildly opinionated. And they asked him about baseball managers. And they said, how come there's no black managers? And he went, because of racism. I can't... If I could do Howard Cosell's boy. Howard Cosell talked like this. He said, you think that baseball requires intelligence? Have you met some of these managers in baseball? They're complete morons. Yeah. It's why there's no, uh, not as many black quarterbacks as there ought to be. Um, how many black quarterbacks are there in the NFL now? A handful? Um, there were none 20 years ago. There was one. There was Warren Moon and Doug Williams. Before that, 30 years ago, when I was a little kid, there were no black quarterbacks because they didn't have the smarts to be a football player. That's how fucking bad it is, right? In any case, uh, to, to get to the good part, um, uh, now there's a little more, uh, you know, excess and whatnot. But I'm going to read a couple of things here. First of all, before I read all the things you gave me, uh, Jared, which are marvelous and absolutely enchanting, since I'm on this topic now, let's just go to this. This was on the MLB site today. Uh, and by the way, I'm still basking in the afterglow of the Giants being three-time world champions. There's no... If there's one thing that gives me joy, it's one that my hometown team that I waited till I was 50 years old for our first championship. Now I'm five years older than that, and we have three fucking championships. We were the first team that had AIDS benefits at our stadium. We were the first team. The San Francisco Giants are cooler than a lot of teams in a lot of fucking ways, and they've had to drag baseball kicking and screaming into the 21st century, as you know, uh, and like that. Um, however, the owner of the Giants is, of course, an unreconstructed, uh, uh, absolutely unfathomable, unsupportable fucking ass. Hole. Uh, really? You can say that after three championships? Yeah. He doesn't pay the people who work at the park at living wage, and the tickets are far too expensive. They make billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. And if you don't think the Giants, after three World Series, sell gear and fucking have TV deals, oh yeah, and sell every ticket in the stadium, every bloody game, um, they're 
rolling in fucking revenue and they could absolutely keep the ticket prices down or lower them uh, so that children could go to the game but Greg why are you always so soppy and sentimental about children when it comes to things like this because children and let's be honest uh, uh, people who are uh, can't get around people who are like uh, shut-ins or invalids or whatever whatever you want to call them people who are unable to get out in public they love baseball too uh, and yet they're the ones who get fucked during every uh, strike and or, or owners lockout which is more precisely what they are. There hasn't been a strike in a good deal of time. Uh, and the reason why um, everyone's so scared uh, of baseball is that the baseball players get paid almost what they earn. They get paid what they should be paid. I know a guy the other day uh, on the Marlins got, uh, Giancarlo Stanton got like $5 billion or whatever for 13 years. Uh, imagine if the entirety of your career could be encapsulated in a 15-year period. That's it. Not like your life, which you're going to carry on living and you're going to have jobs and you're going to go on and on and on. But the, the fulcrum of your life, the part where you're going to make any money only lasted that long. You have to remember that they cut Babe Ruth's pay. Uh, during the depression and he was drawing uh, millions of people to every park in the league um, they've never paid in any sport by the way uh, and I'll go even further in any business whatever you're working for whatever business you're working for and I include the fabulous live nation that owns the punchline here <laughs> we are not being paid what we earn because they are earning a great deal more uh, than they tell you they are and that they this whole oh god austerity and we have to cut back and we've even talking Times are tough. Times aren't tough for the rich. Times are yeah. awesome for the rich. There's never been more money flowing to the very top of the pyramid yeah. than there has right now. Not in feudal Japan. Not in fucking 18th century France. Let them eat cake France. Oh yeah. Not during the Jacobin Rebellion. Not during any time you can fucking think of. This is ancient Rome, baby. Uh, and the Senate are wealthy people who live up on a fucking mountain and take money from profiteers who get them to do their bidding. And that's why when you wonder when things aren't going you think well, why isn't there gay marriage and why isn't weed legalized and why don't we have this and why don't we have that and why are there holes in the road that's why yeah. <laughs> that's why the rich don't care about those things I don't mean rich people like rich like you own a house and you know like you have a house here and a house in Tahoe I mean like you own Tahoe <laughs> You know what I mean? There's giant companies. Uh, this was on Major League Baseball's website today. Commissioner-elect Manfred gets five-year contract. Now, mind you, this is Major League Baseball's site, so I don't expect them to be unbiased and be the, an advocate against themselves. <laughs> but I want to read it to you. Anyway, uh, Matt, Rob Manfred will become Major League Baseball's 10th commissioner, was given a five-year contract. Hooray. Uh, on the final day of the quarterly owners' meetings, Manfred, who's been MLB's chief operating officer, and was executive vice president of labor relations for 15 years, was elected to be the next commissioner during... Really? Did you vote for him? <laughs> he really was elected? Oh, you mean by the... How many teams are there? 28? 30. 30. By the 30 white men that own the teams? He was elected by them. So that's representative of every strata of society. Almost every baseball player who exists is represented by those 30 white billionaires. Can you imagine why some of them are white and rich and some of them are white and extremely rich? And you know what they think about when they get up in the morning? They think, I wonder if a six-year-old could go to the ballpark and have a hot dog with his parents and shit and have a great time for under $50. That's what they think when they get up. I notice your laughter is sort of cynical on that. <laughs> this is so good. The, uh, it's writing. Like I always say, 
notice the writing uh, when you're reading an article on the interwebs or in the newspaper or wherever you're reading. Always take into account who is writing yeah. and what their agenda is yeah. and the lingo and the uh, language that they use because it's all in there. It's all in there. Like Shakespeare or David Mamet. If you've ever seen a David Mamet play, and David Mamet has taken leave of his senses, obviously. <laughs> and it, uh, it, although he has some skill as a writer, uh, his personal views are, are like just to the right of Lenny Reifenstahl or whatever. In any case... Uh, David Mamet will write a scene and it'll be like, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're supposed to fucking fill it all in. Yeah. And that's called subtext. <laughs> this writing requires very little reading of the subtext. He will succeed Bud Selig. First of all, he was elected, which is a, a really beautiful word. So 30 men sat around a table with their aides next to them. And I'll guarantee you how few women and people of color were in that room. I'm guessing two, none. Two. And then this guy's name came up. What is his name? Rob Manfred. And you can see that he's a white middle-aged guy with silver hair. Funny that they didn't elect a Latin guy since so many Latins play baseball, someone who's bilingual. Funny they didn't elect a woman. Uh, funny they elected a white guy who's worked for them for 15 years. Isn't that a coincidence? We looked all over the job pool and there you were sitting in your office. <laughs> Nodding in acquiescence to everything we said. What a great candidate you were. Uh, he will succeed Bud Selig. I can barely get that out of my mouth. I'm so excited Bud Selig's leaving, but I, I, I can barely say the words Bud and Selig. Uh, who is retiring. He's the commissioner of baseball, by the way. He's the one who has what appears to have no lower face. <laughs> and every time you see Bud Selig, he's like, well, it's a wonderful day for baseball. I'm really, really proud of our achievements here in the living <laughs> Do you remember the character Mon Calamari in the fucking Star Wars movie where, my God, my God, he was a squid and he ran a ship? That's what Bud Selig acts and looks like. After presiding over more than 22 years of unprecedented growth and change in the sport. Okay. What's the best thing that's happened in the last 22 years? Obviously, the Giants have won three World Series. Secondly, let's go back 22 years. What year does that make it? 1996? Since 1996, let's look at what's happened in baseball. Um, Montreal, the franchise, was ripped out of Montreal without anyone asking Montreal what they wanted and shoved into Washington, D.C. because the owners were tired of an underproducing franchise in their midst. When the truth is they expanded way too fast in the 90s when they added Tampa Bay and all those fucking teams uh, and that the league should really be 25, 26 teams. Yeah. It really shouldn't be 30 teams. That's too many. Sorry. Yeah. But what about all the people that fuck you is my answer to that. <laughs> it was pure greed that made them explode the way they did and marketing. They thought they could just juke people. And at the same time, you may remember in the last 22 years, there's been things like Michael Jordan and Super Bowls that ended at the last minute with a fucking touchdown and World Cups that blew your fucking socks off. And that's what they're in competition with. They don't think they are because the owners of baseball think baseball is some sort of special, precious fucking thing that everyone loves. It isn't. It's a white guy sport that white guys like, okay? And some Latin guys and a couple of black guys. That's who fucking likes baseball. And some women. That's who fucking likes it. They're so arrogant about getting anyone to watch the fucking game. Also, in the last 22 years, um, there was an all-star game that ended in Milwaukee 
that Bud Selig was at, and he was the former owner of Milwaukee, which is why he was elected owner, that ended in a tie. We don't play to a tie in America. Baseball, the essence of baseball is that you carry on playing. You may remember the most awesome game of all time against the Washington Nationals when we played 18 fucking innings and Brandon Belt hit a tater in the 18th and we held them down in the bottom of the 18th. That's what baseball is all about. That was two full games. At the end of that game, my wife turned to me and went, oh my God, I'm exhausted. And I was like, it's like having a job. <laughs> Bud Silly didn't feel that the people who were left on the field, there was a couple of pitchers left in each bullpen, that they should play positions. But they should, because as much as I advocate for their getting good pay, they're paid enough and they're ball players. You should be able to do everything if you're a ball player. And that means getting out there and filling in in the outfield and pitching if you fucking have to. If you pitched in high school, fuck you. Get out there and pitch. <laughs> what are they, precious little fucking ponies who have to sit down and shit? Fuck you, Bed Selig. And three, the entire fucking steroid scandal broke under his reign. If he had had the temerity and the balls and the cojones and the fucking heart and the catholicity uh, of spirit and the generosity of, of, of mind, when it happened to go steroids are not illegal in baseball the players that are using them are hereby absolved and from now on we'll have a new rule starting tomorrow blah 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 we're going to negotiate with the players union but he didn't did he he let roger clemens and barry bonds and dozens and dozens and dozens of fucking players get besmirched belittled uh, 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 raked across the coals by the press but and the press is almost all non-bilingual white guys who write about baseball and they fucking got a big boner against all the ugly black guys and fucking big uh, no one wanted to say anything about Roger Clemens until they found out he was juicy and then it was like but Roger Clemens was a white redneck guy the kind that we worship and adore where Barry Bonds was cantankerous and told me to fuck off every time I came near him <laughs> Bud Selig's responsible for all of that. If they didn't want to, there to be steroid use in baseball, they ought to have made a rule. Instead of encouraging all the players to do it, which they were, and paying all the players to do it, and looking the other way, which is what the owners did. Are you absolving the players entirely of using performance-enhancing drugs, uh, PEDs as we call them now, uh, in the effort to be better? Yeah. I am, and here's why. Uh, the owners made all the fucking money off it. Arena baseball was wildly successful, and it resuscitated baseball. The year that Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa had a gajillion home runs between them was the year baseball came back from the precipice of not being a sport anymore. In 94, the owners closed baseball to the players, and it almost fucking cost baseball. It almost stopped it, basically. Baseball almost tanked then. I mean professional major league white people baseball. I don't mean baseball. Baseball will go on and on because it's a fun sport. That's what the owners don't realize uh, 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 as well, is that they, we as baseball fans don't need them or Major League. But anyone old enough to here to remember the NFL strike in the 80s? Um, the NFL didn't play for, what was it, eight, ten weeks? For a whole season. We only played like eight, nine games that year. And guess what? We, we went home, we talked to our families and shit. We read, we masturbated. We, some of us made butterscotch pudding. My understanding is a lot of people in the Sacramento area finally perfected their Waldorf salad. Major League sports are fun, but they're like TV or movies. They're entertainment. They're not necessary to your life. People will play football and baseball always at, for fun. And that's where the fun of it comes in. Not that white guys made you pay $125 a fucking ticket. I don't even know how much postseason tickets were at the Giants, but I assume 
somewhere in the neighborhood four or five hundred dollars a game easily right easily I believe he's an outstanding choice who will bring true passion and leadership to Major League Baseball. We're talking about Rob now. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Selig's final owners meetings will be commissioner in January, which is fitting. And this is the sentence that I love more than any sentence in the entire article. Thursday's vote of the owners was unanimous. Rob's going to be a great commissioner, Yankees president Randy Levine said. <laughs> Government, great, according to recent government survey. <laughs> they really think there's nothing wrong with baseball? I mean, the instant replay, think of it what you will and stuff like that. It got tested out this year. There's still some bugs in it. The problem with baseball isn't the game or that it takes too long to play a game. People like the extra entertainment. People want it to last three hours, I believe. Uh, the problem with baseball is it costs too much to go to. Yeah, and the right. cable packages are prohibitive and yeah. they're really sticking you every fucking witch away. That's the problem with baseball. Um, so what would solve that? Them lowering the prices. How would that happen? By taking a smaller profit margin. Yeah. When will that happen? Never. <laughs> Never, ever, 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 ever will it happen. When I was little, we used to go to the ballpark and I'm not going to go into a big nostalgic thing about how good it was then. It wasn't. Uh, but this is what you could do at Candlestick Park in the old days. Go right down to the rail and get autographs from the players, which we did. We would walk down with a pen and, and program and walk down. And I remember Bob Moose, who pitched for the uh, Pirates. Uh, I said, Mr. Moose, can I, Mr. Moose, can I have your autograph? And he went, you're the politest kid I've ever met. Because everyone was going, Bob, 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 Bob. And I went, Mr. Moose. It might have been Bob Veal. I'm getting Bob Veal and Bob Moose confused and you should never confuse veal and moose especially <laughs> if you're dining because if you do you could order something you really all of a sudden and you're like no I wanted the veal and they're like you ordered moose uh, Jared gave me this selection of books so these are uh, uh, um, some literary suggestions he made and no I haven't read these Jared but they look fabulous, and I'm going to read them uh, so everyone in Poopcast land can get with the picture. Beyond the Shadow of the Senators by Brad Snyder. Now, is that about the old senators? It is. And, and about the Homestead Grays and about how they share Griffith Stadium. Ah, Griffith Stadium, yes. Griffith Stadium was in Washington, D.C., and it preceded the last two stadiums that are in Washington, D.C. And um, the owners, for one thing, didn't want black... Clark Griffith owned the senators for ages and ages um, and, uh, and, had, and was, went way back, I think, to the 19th century. But he owned them well into the 40s. In any case, they didn't want uh, Negroes in baseball, uh, even though the senators were one of the first teams to put a bunch of Latins on their team. Why didn't they want them, Greg? Because they were making so much money renting out their park to black teams when they weren't home that that kind of money was better to them than having a black player. Uh, that's why it took so long. Uh, uh, one reason. Uh, that, that sounds fantastic. Um, Henry Aaron, The Last Hero by Howard Bryan. I have nothing but time for Henry Aaron uh, any time in my life. Um, a Well-Paid Slave, Kurt Flood's Fight by Brad Snyder. A lot of Brad Snyder books here. Uh, Kurt Flood uh, was the first player to test the reserve clause, which is what made players chattel. What is chattel? Slaves. <laughs> Chattel means a belonging. Uh, it's something that you own. And uh, the owners had the reserve clause until 1976. And then it finally got broken by Andy uh, Messersmith. Uh, uh, but, but Kurt Flood uh, appealed in 1970 and lost his case and uh, died quite young. Because of it, no, but it didn't help his life anyway. And Kurt Flood was an outstanding outfielder and a very cool player. 
Ricky and Robinson by Roger Kahn. Uh, and that's amazing. And Roger Kahn is always worth reading. That's Branch Ricky and Jackie Robinson. And then Shut Out Race in Baseball in Boston by Howard Bryant. Boston was the last team to integrate, 1959, uh, Pumpsy Green. And um, then they wondered why they never won a World Series forever. And by the way, if Panda Bear goes to Boston, that's it, okay? I've had, I've ranked on Boston for fucking years on this show. <laughs> You may remember when Vancouver uh, lost uh, to Boston in the Stanley Cup a couple years ago, and they had a giant ride in Vancouver, and my response was, they did the only thing you can do when you lose a championship to Boston. Burn your team to the ground and start over. (laughs) Burn the entire city to the very pitch. Now, congratulations, Boston won the World Series the year before, but we won it this year. Um, I don't think he'll be happy there, because he's a switch hitter, and when he bats like 180 from one side, they're going to freak out, and the Boston papers are going to rank his ass, and everyone named Mike who's a columnist there is going to be like he's fat and from another country uh, I know they're avid fans they really are uh, and there's you know we love our brothers and sisters in Boston we'll be playing there next year but um, he's really a giant once and forever isn't he um, when he wears the pink shoes on fucking breast cancer day it is so cool and maybe you guys will remember a little play that he made uh, against Pittsburgh in the uh, wild card playoff game this year where he flipped over the rail and landed on his feet and everyone was like he's so fat I thought he's going to land on his head <laughs> those are the Fox announcers I don't know their names I do but I'm not going to say them <laughs> The Fox announcers rooted against us every round, every round, every inning of every round until the last inning of the World Series in Game 7. They were so desperate that the Giants not win. And there we are, bitch-punking St. Louis and Kansas. (laughs) Funny how Ferguson happened in Missouri and how so many good things happen here in California. (laughs) Really? You're hanging that on their baseball teams? As I've said before, the first time against Texas was a miracle. We staggered across the finish line. We had the shittiest August ever. Then Timmy got shit hot and won five games in September. And we blasted out. San Diego lost seven of the last ten games. And then we we got through the first round. And then we beat St. Louis. And then Texas was nothing to us. We we beat them in five games and it wasn't that close. They won one fucking game. Who cares? It was the Sanchez game. Then the next time against Detroit, uh, they didn't get a... I don't know if they had a lead. I think they might have had a lead in in the last game. Uh, until Buster hit the tater or whatever and won the 10th. That was it. There were the, D- Detroit was easy to handle and they had a monstrous lineup and Fox knew, well, the fucking Detroit could come back at any time. <laughs> no, they can't. <laughs> they're three, they're down three nil in the fourth game. You know, they're not coming back. And then, but this time with, uh, when we played uh, 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 Pittsburgh, oh, there's no way the Giants can beat Pittsburgh and <laughs> the Giants are a bunch of, well, let's just say it, homosexuals. <laughs> They have a lot of Negroes on their team, and uh, it's upsetting. (laughs) Then we played Washington. Washington has the best pitching staff that ever walked onto the pitch in the history of the game. Oh, my God, Washington's pitching staff is on, and they lost in fucking five games. Three games. Four games. Then St. Louis. Oh, my God, St. Louis is the best team. They were in the World Series last year, and they win every year, and St. Louis is the greatest game. Yeah. (laughs) Really? Some shitty pitching moves uh, by Matt Williams and by uh, Matheny. Let's be very fucking honest. The Giants' genius is not that we're the uh, greatest team that ever walked on the field. We're not the 27 Yankees. Um, We have a genius manager. And if you make a mistake, like pull a guy who's shit hot on fire like Washington did against us and replace him with some crappy relievers, we win. And as uh, Tim Flannery, our third base coach, said, we win with rocks and slingshots. (laughs) 
We don't hit a three-run homer every night. Sometimes there's a guy on second and he falls down on third and then someone hits a ground ball to the right side and we win. That's how we fucking win. Because we can play fundamental fucking baseball, which means catching the ball and throwing strikes, okay? That's what fucking baseball is. And then against Kansas City, Kansas City, they're the team of destiny, they're the team of destiny. They aren't the team of destiny. They haven't been to the dance two times in the last five years and trounced other fucking teams. They are the best team we've played in the World Series so far. No fucking question. Hats off to a wavy adversary, as we say in Brooklyn. They took us to the last fucking pitch of the last fucking game, and we barely fucking did it. We did it with one starting pitcher and awesomeness. <laughs> in any case, thank you for those suggestions. Uh, it's a little early for the boring preacher part, but I'm going to come back to this part that you... Uh, we should start the show. We really... <laughs> We've gone so long here. He gave me, uh, Jared gave me this awesome book called Baseball Card Collectibles, 1958 to 1988 Giants. As you may remember, those were the glory years when no World Series were won. But we did have Willie Mays and Jim Ray Hart and Willie McCovey and lots of sexy players. Uh, we had Jesus Alou and Philippe Alou and oh golly. Uh, and, and it's just a book of uh, baseball cards and stuff. 71, we just stopped on here. Uh, 71 is a year I remember quite well. I was uh, one year old. And uh, it's not that funny. I was 10. Uh, the Giants, lacking a 20-game winner, a batting hitter, uh, pulled a miracle of sorts when they won the Western Division title in 71. The aging Willie Mays, he was 38 or 39, hit 18 homers. That's not the exciting part. If you're a real deep baseball fan, look up Willie Mays in 1971. They moved him to the one dog, and I'm not fucking kidding. They had him hitting leadoff for a good deal of the year. He stole a bunch of bases, and he scored, I think, 90, 100 runs that year. He started taking walks. His walks went way up that year. Willie Mays knew that he couldn't crack the ball the way he used to, and he played by sure guile and hustle and fucking because he's a genius of the game. Uh, Bobby Bonds uh, had 33 homers, and that's why he was in the three dog, and that was Barry's... Uh, sainted father uh, God bless him Also number 25 And if I have to make An all time Giants team Obviously Buster Posey And all the World Series guys Are on it But I don't know If you have to make An all time Giants team It's hard not to have Bonds Maze Bonds Out there It really is Because uh, just saying It gives me Kind of a little chub <laughs> I had a lot of these cards They were the Black bordered ones Tops had a really Ugly uh, uh, motif that year but the Giants had some really groovy players that year Tito Fuentes was still on the team and Chris Spire was a rookie and shit like that we won't go through everything on there let's get to the show here uh, let's see uh, we were discussing on the Maui episode and if anyone listened to the Maui episode what a drunken group of reprobate <laughs> Bacchanalian jackanapes there was nothing but mayhem going on in that room the entire fucking time I really couldn't believe it uh that, that show barely finished, you guys. I, I was basically just shouting them down for the last half hour. I've never been in a group of a more unruly fucking podcast uh, audience in my entire... I just fucking... Someone wrote me today and was like, usually you savage the crowd when they act like that. I'm like, dude, I was fighting for my fucking life. I wasn't going to fight with them because I didn't want any trouble. Uh, and Hawaii, as I've said, is that mixture of truck stop, paradise, army base, and shithole. <laughs> but I, I was trying to describe a group of comedians being taken to a holy site for a, a, a ceremony of holy, uh, you know, uh, they, 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 exactly. 
a spiritual moment with a group of comedians. And I said we were a pastel, we were this, we were that. And it was suggested to me that a group of comedians is a, a prior of comedians, <laughs> which I like quite a lot. As you know, priories are where uh, men went to have uh, violent homosexual sex with one another <laughs> and grow herbs. <laughs> If any of the staff is speaking to me, may I have another vodka-flavored vodka drink, please? Thank you, Corey. Hello, my darlings. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace recently launched the latest version of their platform, Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and an incredible feature called Cover Pages. Try the new Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code BOMBSHELL at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, start here, go anywhere. Back in the dark ages of the internet, designing a website was hard work. You'd spend all day troubleshooting, breaking rocks open, reading the skies for portent, opening up chickens and looking at their entrails, dealing with broken links, editing content, even changing font color could be a headache. But no longer, my lovely kittens. With Squarespace, it couldn't be easier. Stop making excuses and get that website done. Carpe bloody diem. I've been telling you about Squarespace for a long time now, and now there's even more with Squarespace 7. Do you need to connect your site to domains, to email, spreadsheets, etc.? Now you can with Squarespace 7's new integration with Google Apps. How about access to 40 million high-quality photos for just 10 clams an image? Squarespace's new partnership with Getty Images makes that possible. Read more about these and all the other new features at squarespace.com stroke 7. Start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code BOMBSHELL, B-O-M-B-S-H-E-L-L, to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the smartest man in the world vodcast. That's promo code BOMBSHELL, Squarespace. Start here, go anywhere. Let that one go too long. Uh, uh, Nicole Justice, who's a friend of the show and tweets under the handle at Justice Mac, wrote me a couple of days ago, and uh, it was a very good tweet, and it went like this. Uh, My Xmas wish is to hear a Man Bag Beer Icky Men of the Year podcast in which you roast guys like this. And it was Don Lemon, uh, who is a CNN uh, host and a complete maladroit nincompoop. (laughs) He was shocking during the Ferguson uh, uh, moments uh, in the news. And this week during the Cosby, uh, you know, scandal that's going on. And thank fuck it's finally all getting some serious uh, light. And God bless you. Thank you very much, my darling. Look at me, two lemons. <laughs> two Don lemons. Uh, you know, the Negro's sneaky by nature. <laughs> that Trayvon Martin, he was wearing a hood. That's scary. Uh-huh. Had uh, one of the women who uh, said that Bill Cosby had forced her to, if you'll pardon the expression, perform fellatio on him. And uh, he was like, why didn't you just bite his dick and run away? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really? Someone went, really? Yeah. Yes, this happened and it happened on the news this week. Because the dominant paradigm is still in place. In case you thought that electing Obama made everything cool again, it didn't. Uh, There's inequities in every 
uh, major aspect of life on Earth, and particularly American life, and people like Don Lemon are given free reign to go on uh, and express their inconceivably infantile uh, and unbelievably unsupportable racist opinions on networks like CNN. And women who are making very serious allegations about traumatic moments that destroyed their emotional lives uh, are taken very lightly indeed, aren't they? As almost all women are whenever they try to explain anything to a man. Uh, And the man goes, well, I don't know why you just didn't bite his dick. Um, You've never had a dick in your mouth the way she did, Don. If you did, you probably wouldn't have bit it. You would have done what you did when you got the job, which is lick the balls lasciviously and let the filling float over you. Because there's no other way I can see how you got a job in the industry. Not with that shitty point of view. It's like listening to Sarah Palin opine on current events and shit like that. I mean, I'm not just picking out her, but she does tend to come back like a bad penny. Her and Dick Cheney will not fucking go away. And it's clear that Sarah Palin is not going to be elected to anything anytime soon, other than queen of her own mind. And there's... Oh, never mind. I'm not going to go into it. In any case, uh, I may do a Man Bag Icky Men of the Year, uh, Man Bag Beer Icky Men of the Year podcast, but I think it'll be more like a a Man Bag Icky Men of the Week kind of thing. Are you going to do one this week? It might happen before the show's over. Uh, You know... Sometimes women want to talk about shit that's happened to them, that traumatized them and destroyed their lives. That's when it's time for you to shut down operations, Commodore. (laughs) Close that window, no sale. It's time to reach down to the bottom of the cooler for a foamy bag bag. (laughs) Man bag beer. It's rich with suds because nothing comes out of your member. Man bag beer when it's flaccid most of the time, but gets angry when women stride manfully into the room. Sometimes a pudding pop isn't something you want to stick in your mouth. That's when it's. That's when it's time to move into a state of denial and pop open a frosty man bag beer. Comes in three sizes, little, big, and oh my goodness, that hurts. Man bag beer. Tastes like a man. It tastes like your cock! Man bag beer. Drink it on the beach with no shorts on. Go there alone to avoid disappointment. Uh, Mike Nichols is floating in the heavens tonight. Mike Nichols uh, had an extraordinary career. Hooray. Mike Nichols uh, passed away. He, he's, uh, he's unique in a lot of ways. Uh, is he the greatest comedian of all time? No. Is he the greatest director of all time? No. Why is he so unique? One, he won a Tony, an Emmy, excuse me, an Oscar. He won every conceivable award that you could possibly win. Uh, and I don't think there's any other major movie director 
that started as an improvisational comedian. Um, he started doing improv in the 50s at the Compass uh, in Chicago, uh, which turned into Second City, or evolved, rather, into Second City. Uh, and he started uh, doing improv there, and, and then him and Elaine May came together, and then they broke up for a while, and then they came back together uh, when uh, an outpost was set up to do uh, the Compass in St. Louis, and they started doing their sketches together. And they improvised at first, and then they'd set the sketches. Then they were taken to Broadway, and when they went to Broadway, they were an enormous smash. From the time they auditioned for their manager, Jack Rollins, to the time they were nationwide was three weeks, approximately. And they got a big review, they went on television, uh, and they, they killed it. And they were a very sexy uh, guy-girl comedy team. Elaine May uh, is a beautiful uh, actress, writer, comedian, uh, director. And Mike Nichols, of course, was a director, too. But they, they would improvise one bit in their Broadway show. And everyone went away, as Gerald Nachman said in the book Seriously Funny, everyone went away thinking that they'd improvise the whole show. Because that's how offhand and vital their improv was. They sat next to each other and smoked. And wore the, oh, she wore a little skirt and he wore a suit. And they had that unbelievable magical rapport that is really the antecedent and the precedent for a great deal of improv that goes on. We, uh, improvisers of today, could never be as sophisticated and as erudite as Nichols and May were. That's the thing they trucked in. Their references were highfalutin. They talked about Russian literature because they were both fans of Russian literature. Uh, are they the greatest improvisers of all time? No. They're stellar. Um, who, uh, Jonathan Winters, by a long mile, is the greatest improviser that ever walked the face of the earth. Because Jonathan Winters didn't need... Drew Carey or Aisha Tyler to tell him when the bit was over. And he didn't need a group of guys. Jonathan Winters was a group of people all on his own. All you had to say to Jonathan Winters was, this is a fishing rod, and he'd go... Oh, it looks like we got a big one of it. Like, unbelievable. I remember Jonathan Winters was improvising. They had him do these egg ads for the egg advisory board in the 80s. And they, they dressed him up as a policeman and he went, I'll be back to shoot you later. <laughs> oh, they love when you say that. That's on a commercial. That's how subversive Jonathan Winters was. Robin Williams was an extraordinary improviser. I... I saw him improvise. Uh, I watched him improvise. I had the chance to improvise with him several times. It was magnificent. As I said before, he would grab you in a headlock, and he was extraordinarily strong and unbelievably hairy and <laughs> shockingly sweaty. So it was like being grabbed by a bowl of Chinese noodles. A very strong, genius bowl of Chinese noodles. Uh, Nichols and May uh, were really uh, something else and if you get a chance to listen to them you ought to um, they, they didn't cover a lot of topical material they did what we would call uh, uh, what I called when we, we what we called when I learned to do improv from Brian Lohman and Reed Roman and all the guys I started in an improv group with McShane and uh, Kathy and Sandy we, we called it behavioral scenes because then you're not talking about politics you're talking about behavior Meaning, a guy and a girl on a date, uh, a doctor and a nurse in the office, uh, a, a mother and a son on the phone. Those kind of behavioral scenes. Scenes that we can all relate to, that everybody knows, because you don't have to be political or anything to understand what's going on with them. 
I'm going to play one now, and I'm going to beg your indulgence. It takes about two minutes to listen to, uh, but since this is an audio show and we're listening uh, and we're doing basically radio here, I hope you won't mind. They had several hit albums here. We're going to get into Mike Nichols' extensive and lengthy career, but since we've stopped on the improv part, I thought we might do uh, one of the bits that they had started as an improv and then ended up as a sketch, uh, and it's called A Little More Gauze. It's a doctor and a nurse in the operating room, and that's all you need to know. Crank that shit up. So... How sophisticated is that? 
you're cold and diffident. <laughs> diffident. Oh my God, Edith, I love you. Please. <laughs> I like. I don't care anymore. <laughs> or I don't know what I'm doing. You. <laughs> It's Pinsky, isn't it? I saw you with him in the cafeteria. Uh, does that murder uh, everything about relationships right there? You're, you're chasing me away. It's fantastic. Uh, here's something Mike Nichols said. So funny. And, and by the way, he enjoyed an enormous amount of success in his career. And he was quite wealthy, uh, as well as having a, a, an extraordinarily tragic childhood. And uh, in any case, he said, it's the hardest thing on earth to like yourself. And then when you do... It's a catastrophe. Uh, this is what Diane Sawyer said. Diane Sawyer was married to Mike Nichols. She's the uh, uh, newscaster uh, and journalist. When Diane Sawyer met uh, Mike Nichols, the Oscar Grammy. Oh, he won a Grammy. That was the uh, award I forgot. Five-time Tony winning director. Mm, it's different in every paper. I've read five different papers today. One said he won seven Tonys, one said he won nine, and one said he won five. Let's split the difference. <laughs> Let's say he won six. <laughs> Uh, was a drug addict hooked on the sleeping pill Halcyon and floating in a black depression. He was having a nervous breakdown and lost in Halcyon madness uh, with thoughts of going crazy. They met in the Concorde Lounge at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, which proves, as we've talked about on the show, about depression. Having money and position and wealth and fame uh, has nothing to do with your mental state. In fact, you can be in the blackest mood of all when you're that rich. Uh, but what about all the rich people you decry all the time? They don't feel that way. They don't care. I'm talking about... Uh, he, he, he was enormously successful by 1987 and quite rich. And he'd had, I think, three wives up till that point. Uh, a little difficulty having a relationship. But uh, we've talked about depression before in the show. And I am prone to black moods. Uh, what, what did uh, Winston Churchill call it? The black dog? A, a lot of people call it lots of different things. Uh, I can't remember remember what Dick Cavett called it. He had the most extraordinary expression for depression. He also suffers from depression. And Robin, of course, uh, was terribly depressed. Um, uh, it, uh, it's not just uh, endemic to comedians. Uh, of course, we're depressed. Look at us. <laughs> There's a gaping hole where humanity should be. And we have the crying need for the uh, uh, affection and attention of strangers uh, and their approval every 15 to 30 seconds. <laughs> Of course we're fucked up beyond measure. But everyone, I think, uh, can understand what depression is about. Some people aren't depressed. There's no question of that. Some people are manic -y or have ADD or, or whatever their fucking problem is. Or they're bipolar or, or they're psychotic or, or, or they're complete fucking psychopaths and they're, you know, serving in public office. <laughs> Just so you know, Mike, Mike Nichols had depression. He didn't care for his mother very much. But then that's a common affliction uh, all over the world that no one likes to talk about. It's not uh, very easy to get along with your parents. If you do, you're, uh, I, I, I detest this word, but it's true in this case, you're blessed. Uh, you're, you're, you, you, you enjoy fortune if you do get along with your parents. If you're mo like most people, you either hate one or both of them and or they both hate you or one of either of them hates you. Uh, or it's just very difficult in a lot of different ways. Um, you love them because they're your parents. But yet when you go home and you sit with them and they put you in a corner like a pumpkin and interrogate you and then stuff you with food and then judge everything that you say. And at that point, your head wants to explode and you feel like the alien's going to burst out of your chest. 
and all you want to do is take your dick out and put it in the meatloaf and then run screaming around the room and then lay a rail out on the table and then fucking shoot somebody you know that feeling during the holidays because they're smothering you emotionally the problem with mothers and fathers is they're things like oh he's so stupid he always does that in front of everyone remember when you were little or at any age at 50 Jesus Christ you ever gonna fucking grow up really you have the freedom to say that because I came out of your fucking body fuck you and then you see it visited generation after generation and shit oh he's the stupid one oh he's the slow one. Oh, she's the ungainly one. Oh, she'll never fucking really you're my parents how about some unequivocal fucking support from your corner and by the way if you do have children think about that the next time you're super fucking angry at them for being idiots Think about the unequivocal support you wanted from your mom and dad before you fucking label them and before you start judging them and shit like that. Oh, they're not good in school. Guess what? School's bullshit. Yeah. Maybe they have another element to their life. Maybe they have more to their personality than fitting into a giant system as being something that's laudable and something that you should uh, promote in their life. Maybe they're creative. Maybe they're uh, aphasic. Maybe they're great at math. Maybe they have another path that their brain takes. Um, being good in a giant system like being a great Cub Scout or being good at Little League or being a great uh, Brownie or whatever isn't really that fucking important at the end of the day. Because by the time you get to be an adult, you realize all those childhood fucking systems and organizations you went through were run by fucking pederast and weirdos and fucking, am I wrong? I mean, it's not, I'd like to say that everyone was benign. There are a lot of lovely people out there, but when you're forced to go to church groups and shit like that and have dinners with people that you absolutely detest when you're seven years old and you already know that you disagree with everything that fucking moron's going to say for the rest of the night and you know it at seven, kids are hip. There's nothing hipper than a kid. I mean, I've said it a million times. Children are monsters. If you leave them alone, it's like Lord of the Flies. You leave kids alone for half an hour, they're going to kill the fat kid with a rake. But having said that, kids have a bullshit detector that's unassailable. I, I was on a kiddie show called uh, True Jackson VP on Nickelodeon. And our live audience would be five-year-olds and seven-year-olds and shit. Some of them would fall asleep during the show, right? They'd be in the audience just like fucking... And I would come out and do a prat fall or fall over or Kiki or whoever Ashley would do a fucking fall or we'd get hit in the ass with a thing and they would cry laughing. And what I love was when little kids would go, Oh my God! Like that. When you hear a seven-year-old scream, Oh my God, that's funny. Because that's pure honesty. Seven-year-olds don't give you the, the... They don't do what adults do, which is... <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Kids aren't about boosting your ego. Kids will walk up to you and go, You're ugly. <laughs> You've got a big thing on the end of your nose. How come your ears are so big? <laughs> I was at a party in the 80s in San Francisco. And the immortal comedy actor, Cleavon Little, came to the party. Mm. He was doing... Uh, 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 I'm not Rappaport with Judd Hirsch at a theater downtown and I was at a theater party and a guy came up to me and goes I know them because I'm in I'm not Rappaport and when Judd uh, when uh, Cleavon comes I'll let you know and I was like I'm a huge Cleavon fan not because of Blazing Saddles so much although he's marvelous in Blazing Saddles he was just a wonderful actor all around and very funny and he came to the party and the woman whose party it was ran up to Cleavon Little she was about six or seven years old and she went you're black like all chickens <laughs> <laughs> 
And Cleavon Little, star of stage and screen, went, yeah, 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 yeah. And then we were outside having a cigarette. And I said, Cleavon, can I tell you something? And he went, yeah, man. And I go, Vanishing Point. Yes. If anyone's ever seen Vanishing Point, yeah. it's with uh, Barry Newman, uh, a guy. Here's the plot of the movie. Uh, he has a Dodge Challenger, and he has to take it from Denver, Colorado to L.A. or San Francisco. I can't remember. San Francisco. And uh, he, I think he has to be there in 36 hours or some really short amount of time, way too short to get there. He takes a handful of speed, and he doesn't snort it. He goes like this. <laughs> and doesn't drink a glass of water and gets in the Challenger and fucking shoots his ass off. The cops chase him the whole way. Cleavon Little plays a DJ named Super Soul who is blind and, and works in a redneck town that's K, and the name of his radio station is KOW. K-O-W. Well, the guy driving the car bearing him is named Kowalski. And, uh, and I went... I loved you in Vanishing Point. And Cleavon Little turned to me and went, that was my favorite fucking thing I've ever done in my career. And we fucking high-fived and shit, and I was never so happy in my life that I mentioned, I didn't go, you're really great in Blazing Saddles. Because he talked all about Blazing Saddles. He told us all about the experience working with Mel Gibson and Mel Gibson. Gibson and Mel Brooks are interchangeable. <laughs> what are you looking at, sugar tits? <laughs> when Mel Gibson went crazy on, uh, on the uh, Pacific Coast Highway a few years ago, and he said to the cop, I own this town, right after he said it, when you would drive into Malibu, someone spray-painted under the town sign. It says Malibu. Someone wrote under it in spray-paint, owned by Mel Gibson. <laughs> Richard Pryor helped uh, Mel Brooks write that picture and uh, they were desperate to get Pryor in to be the lead of that movie with Gene Wilder and it didn't happen the studio wouldn't go for it at the time whatever uh, and Mel Brooks for whatever reason it didn't happen da, da, da. they got Cleveland Little Cleveland was fabulous but it, my point is this if you meet a giant star sometime don't mention the thing they're famous for mention the obscure shit that didn't fucking succeed yeah. that's what they loved doing yeah. the big hit show that they were on oh I loved you on Down Abbey yeah Right. But when you go, I loved you on the pork scratchings, they were like, that ran for one season. <laughs> it's often what people like. Um, you don't go up to Bob Dylan and go, man, that fucking like a Rolling Stone, that's a pretty good song, man. <laughs> if you walk up to him and go, I love the album Saved, he's going to go, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I loved it too. <laughs> I didn't think anyone fucking loved that <laughs> Uh, uh, anyways, uh, they were at the Concorde Lounge. The Concorde was the supersonic uh, jet that flew between uh, Paris and uh, uh, New York. And also there was one that went to Barbados and one that went to London and whatnot. Uh, it was so loud that they made it, uh, when it came over the United States airspace, they had to turn off their main supersonic engines so they could land in the U.S. I lived for a time in Hammersmith in London. And we lived in the flight path uh, uh, right below Heathrow, right? And Hammersmith's on the west end of, uh, of London. And the planes would land in Heathrow, which is out that way. And by pointing, of course, I'm orienting you here in Sacramento. 
we had a patio at this crib and we would sit on the patio and get high my wife and I and we'd drink wine and, uh, 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 and the Concord would come over and it would go like you were like wow and it was small it was like a private plane it was really fucking small you couldn't get over how small the fucking Concord was my understanding is I never flew on it I wished I did um, you couldn't stand up when you got up on the Concord to use the loop and there was a smoking section and I remember John uh, Ronson the wonderful English writer was on the Concord once with Mick and Keith right from the Rolling Stones and Keith sat in the back because you could smoke right this is in the late early 90s and so Keith's in the back smoking and Mick's up the front right and John Ronson goes oh my god if this plane crashes it's going to be Mick and Keith died and others <laughs> They'll never even get to the newspaper columnists, right? Uh, uh, hallucinating, he was losing all his money. He began selling his prize collection of Polish Arabian horses he kept on a farm in Bridgewater, Connecticut. Diane was the impetus, blah, blah, blah. Um, he was left permanently hairless after a botched whooping cough vaccination at age four. He's always worn a wig, fake eyebrows, almost his entire life. There's not a hair on his body. How strange is that? Uh, Diane Sawyer, and this I love about Diane Sawyer, because I met her years ago at an ABC event. when uh, Whose line was on ABC? We were in New York. And um, she's a fox. You know, socialite thin, right? You know. Uh, I have no taste, Sawyer admitted. When I've had the option of going to a movie or looking at fabric swatches, that wasn't even close. I'd rather send out for pizza and sit on my floor pillows. <laughs> Nichols took care of all the furnishings in their apartment. That I love about Mike Nichols. He's such a director uh, every moment of his life. She admits he's more romantic than she is. He puts little notes in my sock drawer. That's so cute. Uh, I know, right? Everybody goes, oh. But then everybody thinks, I should fucking do that. <laughs> you should and all. You should and all. Uh, I send Jennifer postcards. Uh, I buy her flowers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you've got to keep that shit moving, baby. I'm not saying I'm so great. I'm a complete cunt. There's no question about that. I'm an intolerable, depressive cunt. I'm a good-natured inebriate, but I'm also a dark and shallow cunt. And uh, so you got to fight. You got to fight to keep their love. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Nichols in May. Uh, uh, let's see. Well, also, he had a wonderful marriage to Diane Sawyer. Good for him. And he won lots of awards. Uh, this is a quote about Nichols in May from when they first started. Uh, the the te- What I just played you. Robert Brewstein from the New Republic. This is from 1960, I think. They only lasted about four years as a team. Nichols in May, in short are the voice of the outraged intelligence in a world... And you might, as I read this paragraph, you might understand why I relate to it so strongly, but also how uh, cogent and how perceptive uh, Robert Brewstein's assessment of Nichols... And by the way, he was scathing on them later uh, in their individual careers, but uh, rather at the time... Let me read you this. Nichols and May, in short, are the voice of the outraged intelligence in a world giving over to false piety cloying sentiment and institutionalized stupidity and if this small voice can be heard above the racket being produced all around us then satire is still performing its traditional functions to relieve that overwhelming sense of frustration impotence and isolation which afflicts the better spirits in our fatuous times um i thought it was very well put of course it's extraordinarily white and bourgeois The idea that traditional functions of satire are to relieve our overwhelming sense of frustration. Uh, Only a middle-class person would say that. (laughs) But there you are. Uh, And since we've reached the word fatuous, let me just read the definition for you. 
I'm, I'm not presuming that you don't know what it means, but we like to cover all ground here, <clears throat> and particularly vocabulary. Fatuous, adjective. Uh, foolish or stupid. This is from, uh, I believe, Merriam-Webster. I went on the Cambridge Dictionary one, but the Merriam-Webster's examples were so egregious that I had to use this one. <laughs> Complacently or inanely foolish. Silly. A fatuous remark. Fatuous. Lee. Adverb. Fatuousness. Noun. Uh, examples of fatuous. <laughs> well, like, for instance, when Kim Kardashian tweets a, 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 a picture of her baby in her and is like, uh, Little North is in Paris and it's great. <laughs> That's fatuous. <laughs> it's inanely foolish and complacent. All of Twitter is fatuous. <laughs> Facebook is beyond fatuous. It's douchebashious. <laughs> the fatuous questions that the audience members asked after the lecture suggested to the oceanographer that they had understood little. <laughs> hey, Merriam-Webster, who's writing these examples? What oceanographer? What were the fatuous questions? I have a question, Mr. Oceanographer. Are whales fish? <laughs> if shrimp are in schools, how come they're not smarter? Why did the oceanographer entertain fatuous questions from an audience? This example raises many more questions than it answers. But then the object of an artist is to raise questions. Not to answer them, but to raise them. The oceanographer? What fucking year was this written? You know, when I put on my helmet and went down in the bathosphere... This one is the worst example. Several years ago, I remember reading one. Uh, it was, I think, dictatorial. I can't remember what it was. It was in San Francisco. And it was like the autocratic basketball coach. And it was like, no. In order to illustrate the use of a word in a sentence, you must give it context. For instance, if I said, I was listening to Sarah Palin the other day. And the fatuousness... Uh, with which she spoke of uh, her ideology and her beliefs was uh, unbelievably astounding to me. Gives you an idea of what she might have been talking about. This one, I don't know if you want cake tonight, but I don't think there's any more because this fucking example... <laughs> It's a cake taker. <laughs> like if I said, Jessica Simpson reading the Constitution, right, was fatuous. You would be like, I get it. Ignoring the avalanche warnings. <laughs> The fatuous skiers continued on their course. <laughs> Let me understand something about these skiers. Were they inanely foolish? 
Or were they simply, as the second definition states it, stupid? (laughs) Why, look at that sign over there. It says avalanche area. Fuck it, let's get on the lift anyway. That's what fatuous skiers talk like. Mike Nichols, one of America's most celebrated directors, is from the New York Times. Uh, Dryly Urbane. I don't hope for much in my demise. Uh, As I've said before, don't let me die without a eulogy being written before I die. Don't wait till I die to eulogize me. Eulogize me in an event a couple of weeks before I die. I don't want to be dead and hear you fucking reading all these grand things about me and shit. If you dug it, then fucking write something. Greg was all right. He was okay. There was that time in Sacramento when he read about the, uh, uh, the fatuous skiers and whatnot. That was mildly amusing. Remember the time Drew Carey said Africa was a country? I was all right. Don't fucking wait on that shit. Don't send it to me with flowers. Because I'll be D-E-E-D, okay? That's the thing about celebrating people. Dryly urbane. If you're going to use an adjective or a phrase to describe me, would you please use dryly urbane? But you're not. You're drunkenly all over the yard. Well, fuck you. Foutez-vous. I wish to be dryly urbane. Had a gift for communicating with actors with keen uh, keen comic timing, which we heard. Uh, the Graduate. He directed The Graduate, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Carnal Knowledge. Uh, he accomplished what Orson Welles and Elia Kazan, but few of any other directors. He achieved popular and artistic success in film and theater. He was one of a handful to win an Oscar, Tony Grammy, and an Emmy, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, the first time Mr. Nichols stepped behind the camera in 66, it was to direct Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor in an adaptation of Edward Albee's scabrous stage portrayal of a marriage, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. The film was nominated for 13 Academy Awards. It didn't win. Um, the film won five. Um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is scabrous. And scabrous means it's a shocking look at a, a decaying marriage and two people very, very drunk and having a go at each other while another couple's visiting their house. Richard Burton is a superb actor. Not in every film. I believe that really his strongest work was probably on stage. However, in this movie, he's bitter and alcoholic and is superb. Elizabeth Taylor is not better in any movie than she is in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. She's in her early 30s. She's gained a little bit of weight and she's loud and fucking obstreperous. And it's fantastic. Also, Edward Albee is a keen... um, how do I put this? His, his insight into the human condition is uh, well-perceived and uh, amazingly realized. And uh, uh, there's a famous line in the play where she's yelling, and Richard Burton has the glasses on, and he's an English professor, and he goes, Stop braying, Martha. And Elizabeth Taylor goes, I don't bray! <laughs> Mike Nichols, uh, in his fatuousness, uh, because he did have a fatuous side, said he was playing down the street in a play, and he met Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. They were playing down the street. They were in the same uh, place in Broadway, and that he got to be friends with Burton, and that's how he got to direct their play, uh, their movie. And he said, I I met them and I became friends with a famous person, and I suggest that for anyone's career. Fantastic. He won an Oscar for The Graduate. He was best director in his second movie. Uh, the Graduate's an amazing movie, and uh, Dustin Hoffman was not the candidate they were going to use. Uh, he's supposed to be a tall blonde guy, and it was going to be Robert Redford, I think. 
Dustin Hoffman said, uh, this is fantastic here. There's no, I'll do it as Dustin Hoffman. It'll make it funner. There's, there's no piece of casting. <laughs> Mrs. Robinson, you're opening up your whole life to me. There's no piece of casting in the 20th century that I know of that's more courageous than putting me in that part, Dustin Hoffman said. Because uh, he's short and Jewish. Anne Bancroft, by the way, in the movie, looks a lot like Elaine May, Mike Nichols' partner, who he had broken up with uh, some seven years before. She has black hair. She's gorgeous, totally sexy with the cigarette. The bit where, if you've ever seen the movie The Graduate, uh, she's supposed to be a much older woman. She's in her 40s, and he's supposed to be 20-something. Of course, he's 30, because it's a movie. Uh, they kiss in one scene, and she's just taking a huge drag. And finally, he kisses her, and it's a long, elongated comedy kiss. And at the end of the kiss, Anne Bancroft goes, <laughs> and blows the smoke out of her mouth. And that was, an LA, that was a Nichols and May bit. They used to do a bit where she would blow the smoke out of the side of her mouth when they were kissing. Uh, Driven, forceful, and for all his wit and charm, known occasionally to strafe the feelings of cast and crew members, Mr. Nichols was prolific. Uh, he worked with everybody. He really did. Julie Christie, Lillian Gish, George C. Scott, Richard Dreyfuss, Morgan Freeman on Broadway, Off-Broadway, Steve Martin and Robin Williams as Gogo and Dee Dee and Waiting for Gatto by Samuel Beckett, Outdoors in Central Park only a few years ago, Merle Streep, Natalie Portman, Christopher Walken, John Goodman and Kevin Klein in The Seagull by Chekhov. Um, the pictures he directed, aside from uh, 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 Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate, the fantastic movie Silkwood uh, with Cher and Meryl Streep, which is about um, the nuclear industry and their lies and how they assassinated, basically, a woman who tried to squeal on them, a whistleblower, uh, played by Meryl Streep. And Cher is the lesbian roommate. And she wasn't a movie star then, and she's fantastic. And it's way before all of the changes. And she's really terrific in it. Cher is a great actor. And I'll go even further. Cher might be the best rock star that was an actor ever in the movies. Um, as Joe Keenan once said in an essay about Elvis Presley, they were like, oh, if Elvis had the right party, he'd have been a good actor. Elvis was in a hundred movies. <laughs> he was an okay actor. In Kid Creole, he's all right. There's a couple of movies, but most of his movies are schlocktastic pieces of shit. Cher, on the other hand, is outstanding in a lot of movies and really, really funny, like Bette Midler. Uh, there's Mick Jagger and David Bowie are the worst actors that ever fucking walked the face of the earth. Um, Prince, you guys. Prince. Prince's acting. Wow. Wow. As an actor, you're a magnificent funk star. He's a magnificent star of soul music. Acting. If anyone saw Under the Cherry Moon, wow. The best part of Under the Cherry Moon is the songs. Mm, yeah. Because when they sing the songs, you're like, oh, fucking Prince, finally. <laughs> what, what, there's, there's that scene in, in Purple Rain, and I love Purple Rain beyond all measure. There's the scene where he has a, like a love scene with Apollonia, and he takes her clothes off and he's feeling her up. And I remember my friend Tina Ruddick at the time when we saw the movie turned to me and went, it's like he's never been with a girl. <laughs> I know that this isn't on the playlist. Who's back there? Is it Carlos or Kurt? Carlos? Will you find Prince on just the playlist there? He's under artists, under Prince. Carlos, have you found it? Fucking one-off Purple Rain, baby. Not Purple Rain. I don't even think I have Purple Rain on there. 
How about, um, like, yeah, I would die for you or uh, maybe Baby I'm a Star? Fuck, I'll take anything. I don't give a shit. <laughs> well, since we were talking about Cherry Moon, you need another lover like you need a hole in the head. That's a fucking groovy one. <laughs> Carlos, the show's not that long. <laughs> Pick a fucking Prince song and spin it. This one? Not this one. I love all. I love this song. It's on Diamonds and Pearls. But can we can we have another one? Can we have another one? To be fair, Carlos is volunteering here tonight. Well, you're close. You're so young, Carlos. It's not pur- It's a little before Purple Rain, but okay. Could you crank it up a little? It's one of his best songs, right? And you have to... Primary colors he made. He made a lot of pictures here. <laughs> Mike Nichols is up in the sky tonight. Uh, here's the last thing I'll say about him. They gave him a tribute a couple of years ago. How long ago? 16 years ago. But it was like it was a couple. <laughs> Uh, in 1999, Mr. Nichols was honored at Lincoln Center for a lifetime of achievement. And Ms. May, who you've heard before, his one-time foil, and after hiatus, his longtime friend, addressed the crowd. And by the way, Elaine Mace had a huge career, being a script doctor and a writer and a playwright and whatnot. Addressed the crowd and offered an echeminium. This is what I love about the New York Times. She offered an echeminium. <laughs> When I'm given a tribute at the Arden and Howe Mall <laughs> in 2018, will you please offer an ecumenium <laughs> with just enough bite to make it ring true? And this is what Elaine May, his one-time partner, said about him. So he's witty, he's brilliant, he's articulate, he's on time, he's prepared, and he writes. But is he perfect? 
He knows you can't really be liked or loved if you're perfect. You have to have just enough flaws, and he does. Just the right perfect flaws to be absolutely endearing. Uh, exactly. And uh, he's endearing in the stars tonight, uh, swirling around uh, Mike Nichols. Jimmy Ruffin passed away this week. Jimmy Ruffin uh, was a Motown singer. He was born in Mississippi and grew up there um, with his, um, his brother. His father was a sharecropper and a preacher and a gospel singer. His mother was named Ophelia, which is fantastic. Uh, his brother is David Ruffin, his younger brother. He had a lot of siblings. Uh, David Ruffin was the lead singer of The Temptations all through the 60s. Excuse me. And sang My Girl and whatnot. Jimmy uh, had a traveling gospel group, and Jimmy and David uh, performed as a duo called the Ruffin Brothers. In any case... Uh, Jimmy had a couple of big hits in 66 and 67 and then later uh, when the career wasn't so hot here moved to England and was a DJ and had quite a good career in England in the 80s and whatnot. he did a song called What Become of the Broken Hearted and this is what I want to do uh, he, he had a disco hit called Hold On to My Love uh, which was written by Robin Gibb the late great Robin Gibb of the Bee Gees um, here's uh, let's see here what was, uh, according to the AP oh phooey there was a great quote here that I can't find here it is uh, in an interview uh, in the, with the BBC in 1999, Jimmy Ruffin recounted how he came to be recorded What Becomes of the Brokenhearted. It was written by James Dean, William Weatherspoon, and Paul Reiser, and was written... Not that Paul Reiser. <laughs> <laughs> what Becomes of the Brokenhearted? <laughs> I know I've got to find some kind of peace of mind. Look, Ripley... There's no reason why we can't only count on this. These guys are bad hombres. Uh, Was originally intended for the spinners. Oh, the spinners. Uh, Do I dare, Carlos? No, I don't. No, no, no. Go stay on your Jimmy Ruffin one. Stay, stay, stay. Don't play it yet. Although I'd love to hear. I don't even know if I have the spinners on there. I I love the spinners so much, but I love all. You know, obviously I'm sick with it. But uh, it's a shame. It's I think my favorite spinner song. Although uh, yesterday I heard "Could It Be I'm Falling in Love," and that one is fucking amazing. In any case. Uh, he says, the song was written for the Spinners, uh, another group on Motown, but one day in the Motown studios, he said he heard Mr. Dean singing it. The song had the kind of words one can feel, and it was a beautiful melodic song. Um, I told him to give it to me instead, and he let him make a demo. He liked my version enough to let me have it. W- will you spend the Jimmy Ruffin, uh, What Becomes of the Broken Hearted? It's an extraordinary record. It's beautiful. Like Roy Orbison, the majesty of the sadness is overwhelming. Oh no. Thank you. 
Jimmy Ruffin is way up in heaven. I, I saw David sing, and I wished I'd seen him uh, sing more. Uh, but David uh, was the lead singer of The Temptations. Will you play that Ain't Too Proud to Beg one there? Just so I orient you. And this one has to be loud. Although Jimmy. Right? Uh, Jimmy and David one and then we'll roll on this bad boy here I was going to get to all kinds of boring and preachy parts tonight but I really think it, we have to tonight let's have a night without any boring preachy part we had so much boring pre- whoa 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 Carlos alto alto mi amigo uh, we'll be uh, let's see where will we be we'll be Stop it. (laughs) Fucking sneaking in some bass notes on me. (laughs) Fucking Funk Brothers back there. The 29th. I think we might already be done by then. We'll we'll be at the Bell House on the 29th, which is the Saturday after Thanksgiving. That's in Brooklyn. I invite you to join us in Portland, uh, Oregon, uh, 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 December 4th through the 6th at the Helium Comedy Club. The 4th will be the podcast. Stop tweeting me and asking me which fucking night the podcast is. The podcast will be the Thursday. Okay, you guys. Uh, And then we'll be at the... uh, Nerd Melt back in Los Angeles on the 18th. Uh, that one cost, I think, 10 bucks. And then we'll be at Up Comedy in Chicago on the 10th of December. On the 13th, we'll be at the Bloomington Center for the Performing Arts in Bloomington, Illinois. That will not be a podcast. That will be a stand-up show. Then we'll be at the Punchline in San Francisco. Uh, our traditional New Year's Eve gaffe uh, will be there uh, for stand-up all week long. The podcast is on December 30th. Uh, and then we'll be playing on the 31st. Then we're going to take the first off. And then we're coming back to the second and third. And we're going to record a new album there. So if you want to come and visit us I'll be making a new stand-up album on the second and third and yes we call them albums uh, and thank you it's going to come out on vinyl yeah like the King Ed Rock said and we're putting it on wax it's the new style four and three and two and one what up when I'm on the mic the sucker's all and then next year Next year, we'll definitely be all over the country, uh, but we're certainly going to be in Philly and Boston at the beginning of the year, and then uh, I'll be out on the road with all the Who's Line guys. We're shooting Who's Line again uh, in January. Yes, it'll be on for the third season. Um, For those of you who like it, 
It's on the CW on Friday nights. Uh, we're, we're shooting again next year, so hopefully I'll live till then, and we'll, uh, we'll shoot it from then. Uh, and then next May, I'll be all over the country and all over the world, uh, everywhere around. So come and visit in those places. And, of course, you can go to gregproops.com and download the podcast for free at any time. Um, I want to say that it's been great fun tonight. Uh, I was uh, a little uh, down when I came in today. Why, Greg? For my own personal fucking reasons, that's why. Um, and I, I do want to do a boring preachy part, but I'll just do one here since we got... Uh, uh, Jared gave me this, and it's uh, from your fabulous Sacramento alternative paper. And it's from the uh, December 13th issue, and it's the anti-corporate list. Project Censored announced the 2014's top 10 overlooked stories. As you know, the media is in the business of protecting uh, the vested powers and the interests that be, and the government and all the giant corporations. The media is not in the business of discovering stories and exposing things that affect our daily lives, because that would mean uh, that they would lose their sinecured positions and that they would no longer be paid uh, for dispensing the lies and the bullshit that they disseminate. So very freely and title news. Uh, in any case, uh, Project Censored uh, goes through uh, what's been reported each uh, year. And uh, this, I'll just go to one here that really struck my eye. Uh, the deep state of plutocratic control. That's number eight here. Although the other ones are all very exciting. Uh, number one is our oceans are acidifying. Number two is top 10 U.S. recipients practice uh, U.S. aid recipients practice torture. It's fun. <laughs> it's, it's a real upper. Uh, number eight. When fr- what's frightening about the puppeteers who pull the strings of our national government is not how hidden they are, but how hidden they are not. From defense contractors to multinational corporations, a wealthy elite using an estimated $32 trillion in tax-exempt... $32 trillion. I don't even know how much that is. I can't conceive of a trillion. I don't even know if a trillion is $3 billion. I absolutely I, I don't know how much a trillion is I know how much a hundred thousand is I know how much a million is I know how much a billion is I don't know if a trillion Is a trillion a thousand billion? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus Christ <laughs> Are the masters of our publicly elected officials In an essay written for Moyer and Company By Mike Lofgren A congressional staffer of 28 years This cabal of wealthy interests Comprise our national deep state Lofkin writes, uh, Bill Moyer is an outstanding uh, journalist uh, who is often strangely enlisted to host the presidential debates, which I'm always like, really? How did you let someone who knows the truth in the room? Why didn't you get Dan Lemon to host it? Now, if someone's forcing you to suck their dick, why don't you just bring out a pop gun and scare them and then run out of the room? That's what I'd have done. As Lofkin writes, the deep state is the big story of our time. It is the red thread that runs through the war on terrorism, the war on terrorism. Terrorism is not something you can have a war on because the government of this country commits terrorism. Therefore, who is the terrorist? If I drop a predator drone on you and you're an innocent person, isn't that terror? If I waterboard you and I have not charged you, nor have I arrested you even, I've simply apprehended you and stuck you in a cave and fucking stuck a thing up your ass, isn't that that terrorism? If I support giant countries that wipe out people at will, if I sell arms to people who are bad guys, is that not terrorism? Uh, There's many definitions of terrorism. Fighting a war on terror is, this, is like fighting a war on being scared. 
You can't eradicate fear, nor can you eradicate terror. Uh, and terror is the chief uh, uh, you know, weapon uh, uh, of all governments. The financialization and deindustrialization of the American economy, that we can talk about all fucking day long, uh, all up in this place. The rise of plutocratic social structure. Plutocrats uh, are people who uh, work only for themselves. A plutocracy means government by the elite. A, a plutocracy means government by the wealthy. What do I mean by that? Well, how much influence do you have with national figures? How much influence do you have with local figures for that fucking matter? Um, a plutocracy means the wealthy run the state uh, to their own end, meaning uh, tickets at baseball games are not cheap enough for children. There are potholes in the road, and there's no health care for everyone. And when someone like Obama, who simply because he's black, he's not particularly liberal, uh, and in this last election, uh, the agenda of this newly elected Senate and all that is to undo everything he did. And that includes the Supreme Court trying to undo parts of Obamacare and the, the National Health Act and all that, um, which are, by the way, vital to us as a country. There is nothing more vital than health care for every individual that lives in America. And fuck you if you think it's not a right. Fuck you. Why isn't it a right? Dick Cheney's had five fucking heart operations. No one says to him it's a privilege and shit like that, right? Uh, it's only a privilege if you're poor or don't have any money. Healthcare seems to be a fairly a vital right to me. The staff is going to fucking kill me. I'm talking about healthcare and they're here for two fucking hours. <laughs> And political dysfunction. In any case, uh, think about that on your way home. But think about this as well. Um, within the plutocracy and within the, uh, 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 the unbelievable power uh, that the 1% uh, wield in the world, remember that they can't eat all of us and that we outnumber them a billion to one and that we have each other and we have each other's backs and that... Today is today, but the future is always fucking unwritten. It, as Mike Nichols said, the great thing about the future is it changes every morning when you get up. And uh, the world will not always be uh, this kind of place. The world will be a better place because the world is a better place than it was. The fact that we're even talking about the fact that women have rights and that uh, people uh, of color have rights and that anyone should be heard is a vast improvement over what the world was like a hundred years ago. I guarantee motherfucking goddamn to you. Uh, so we can only look forward to the next 30 or 40 years when the powers that be will all die and the people who run the things will be dead and that we can stride forcefully into the future arm in arm together. You have been the smartest crowd in the world. I have been the smartest crowd in the world. Carlos, if you will. Yeah. 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 Yeah.